COVID here to stay, Morrison kills respect at work for women, the recession, but the good news is magnetic liquid fighting microplastic. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday for this, the very first day of spring, and it's a lovely sunny day in most of Victoria, and I am joined, as is increasingly the case, from lockdown Sydney, by the wonderful, the magnificent, the much-loved, missed and admired Van Baden. How are you, Van? I miss you so much! I miss you, I miss the dog, I miss our house, I miss our garden, I miss our neighbours. Oh, man, I missed my life, let me tell you. I have to say, you know, when I do leave the house for my government-mandated moments of exercise and uh, food shopping, I I do have to always make sure that I'm up to date with what I'm going to tell the neighbours about what's going on with you, what's going on in Sydney. They're all very, very keen to know. And And again, I know I've said this many times, but so many of our listeners for to the week on Wednesday have reached out and you know just been really great over this last what is it now nearly 12 weeks uh, it's just a blur now it's making me realize I don't really remember what the lockdowns were like in Victoria because I was with you you know and I remember that we worked in our garden and cooked together and played Ghost of Tsushima Legends on PlayStation and and got through it. And now that we're separated, I'm really feeling it. I'm really feeling it. You know, it's not just a a thing we have to enjoy. It's really painful now. And it just makes you realise how terrible it's been for so many people. Like our friends who live alone, I don't know how they haven't all gone completely bananas. I mean, at least I'm here with my mum, you know, who I adore, who's great. But, yeah, it's it's hard work. It's hard yeah. work. So love to everyone who's struggling at the moment. Like, we feel you. We hear you. And I think, I think today's series of announcements uh, probably have made a lot of people feel upset, uncertain. Uh, I know certainly I felt a bit of a blow uh, with the kind of the news that in Victoria – we now have to sort of abandon the COVID zero policy. Um, and in effect, we're, we're acknowledging that COVID is here to stay. I think to some degree, we've all suspected that that would be the case in New South Wales. I don't think there's any doubt about that now. Um, WA and Queensland and to a degree Tasmania are all saying, well, hang on a minute, we don't have any. You know, it might be impossible to get back to zero, but we're at zero. We don't want you. We don't want to have any. Thank you. You know, the the numbers today are truly staggering. New South Wales has clicked over to the nineteen thousand active cases. This is people with COVID right now in the state of New South Wales. There are nine hundred and seventeen people in hospital in New South Wales. With COVID, that's more than the total active cases in Victoria. There are 1,116 new cases and four people passed away. You know, it's incredibly sad that we're now seeing those numbers of deaths creep up. We're seeing those hospitalizations creep up. We're seeing Gladys Berejiklian talk about October as being the worst month. you know, there's a some reminder real... to everybody: it's the first of September. It's the first of September in New South Wales, where uh, where where we've set the record. I mean, it's gold standard New South Wales: more than a thousand cases a day. Remember when the Liberals were laying into Daniel Andrews because it was 800 cases a day in Victoria at the beginning of the pandemic? 700. We got to 700. Oh, sorry, 700. Forgive me if I I got my mass exaggeration of circumstances mixed up. And now in New South Wales it's more than 1,000 a day, but it's different somehow. Ben, I just can't work out what the difference is. I just don't understand why Gladys Berejiklian is not copying the beating from her comrades on the right that Daniel Andrews in earlier in the pandemic. Do well, you know what it might be? 
Oh, well, it's a pretty clear bias of the Murdoch media, frankly, among other media outlets as well, but primarily from the Murdoch media. Somebody pointed out today that, you know, there are literally 20 times as many cases in uh, uh, New South Wales as there were reported in Victoria, and yet the, the headline about Gladys is... Gladys shows pathway to freedom, and the headline about Victoria was uh, Dan records worst outcome of the year. <laughs> you go, this is because let's get into Victoria. There are 900 active cases in Victoria, 120 cases today, and two people passed away. The first two deaths in Victoria since October last year from COVID. Um, you know, so it is a bad day for Victoria. There's no question, and and. and you know, Andrews and um, the Chief Health Officer have said that it is not a good day for Victoria. That flies, though, in the in the face of, and in contrast to Gladys, who continually seems upbeat about thousands of cases, multiple deaths, hundreds of people in hospital. It seems like every day there's a new town in New South Wales that has an outbreak, like and yet she remains upbeat. She's talking about international travel and we'll all be going to the pub and to events in October. Like this sort of, it seems quite delusional to, to oh, be. It's, you know, can I just tell you what I think it is? I think it's sick. I mean, I'm here and I think it's absolutely sick. So I watched a press conference from, I haven't been able to watch the press conferences, which I know is terrible for somebody who does a news podcast. But I, two days ago, I was like, if I, I if I watch another one this week, I'm going to end up needing care. Like I can't, I had a panic attack watching her uh, presser the other day where she went on like Pollyanna, like, yeah, there are 1,200 new cases and, yeah, hospital wards are not taking patients and the the system's in total chaos and everybody's freaking out and it's, you know, cutting through communities and some of the most marginalised communities in New South Wales. And yet she was like being all sunshine and let's not get caught up with these figures. The figures we need to focus on, Ben, are vaccination. That's what we should be focusing on. And I'm like, my mother's in cancer treatment. There was an outbreak of coronavirus at the ward where my mother is getting cancer treatment and she didn't go into the cancer centre. She had no, an appointment to go in there and didn't go in there because she had a funny feeling one morning. And, of course, me being my mother and I had an argument about it and I was like, fine, do a telehealth appointment, it's okay. And as it turned out, her funny feeling may have saved her from exposure to coronavirus. And even though my mother's double-vaxxed and I'm double-vaxxed, you know, my mother is immunocompromised. Yeah. She's a cancer patient. Yeah. And the idea that the Premier is just like, well, you know, let's not worry about those 1,200 cases, I was just like just the level of disregard for what actual human beings who live in the physical space we call New South Wales are, are going through at the moment, I was just I was just blindly angry. I put out two tweets. I haven't been tweeting a lot recently because, as you know, I've been working on my book, QAnon, and on the short and shocking history of the internet conspiracy cults, available for sale uh, from November 18, by the way, everyone. So I've been working now. on my book and I haven't been on Twitter a lot because also I get too depressed and can't work. And then, and I put out these two tweets and they went absolutely bonkers. And I had so many people write to me going, yep, I feel the same. I feel genuinely afraid. Like I feel in New South Wales at the moment, it's that fear that the government is not in control and that it's that their response to spiraling cases is to put PR spin on the situation and let's not worry about the number of cases and let's not report how many were active in the community and all this kind of nonsense that's going on. I mean, it's patronising for a start because I think even if you live in New South Wales, you are old enough and ugly enough to hear the truth and base your decisions around correct information. And, you know, the, the whole Pollyanna Act, I was just like, this is dangerous. Like the moment you make the decision essentially to get high on your own supply of disinformation is when entire communities suffer and I felt that and it was so funny because like you know the because these tweets I put out 
were really popular. Obviously, the the hard right found them, and they were laying into me, going, "Oh, it's all right for her. She's double vaxxed. Why is she frightened? What's she so scared of?" And it's just like my mother has cancer. My mother has cancer. And if my mother is infected with coronavirus despite being double vaxxed, her chances are not great because of where her health is at. And literally, if that comes near my mother or my family because of the incompetence of the government of New South Wales, I just, God help them. Seriously, yeah. God help them and, because this is just disastrous. And this like, is, I just I just don't let mum leave the house. Yeah. I don't let her leave the house. I mean, you know, where well, are we going to go apart know, from the I cancer know. ward? Then, I mean, this is this is the point, isn't it, right? Because there are there are incredibly vulnerable communities of people um, and some of them are geographically located to, together, right? So the Wilcania yeah. po- population... Uh, 10% of the people in Wilcania now have COVID. That town has one ventilator, you know, and, and that is a high-risk community. Um, there, there are issues around where the equipment is, um, whether there are skilled staff who can operate the equipment. Uh, you know, the Nurses' Union put out a list of dot points that I thought were really, really good, actually. They're talking about what's actually needed for the health system to be able to cope with a reopening, knowing that vulnerable communities will be exposed, knowing that cases will increase, knowing that hospitalisations will increase, that, you know, we need to have vaccination rates for vulnerable communities, not just a sort of blanket, oh, well, once we average 70% across the whole state. No, no, it's got to be the vulnerable have to actually be um, vaccinated. There has to be an expansion of ICU, uh, that's intensive care, and the health system, quarantine, contact tracing capacity, all needs to be boosted. And actual booster shots. What's the plan here? You know, we're seeing in Israel at the moment, they're rolling out booster shots of COVID vaccine. We haven't even got through the population having one shot, let alone the two shots required, let alone thinking about planning for boosters. But the nurses have made that point. You know, actually, if we're going to, if COVID's here to stay and we're going to accept a level of cases in the community, all of these things have to be addressed. You can't just talk about international travel, refuse to meet with the mayors of the local government areas that you've effectively put under um, uh, house arrest and pretend that we're all going off to the pub in in the middle of October. Let's talk about international travel. Like, I just it's it's just fantasy land kind of stuff. You know, people are barely clinging on, really. You know, it's it, the fear has set in. I don't have any confidence in the British government's capacity to handle this crisis. I just don't. And this is, I mean, you're making this point about. What the nurses union have said and solidarity with the mighty mighty ANMF you're an extraordinary union um, that what coronavirus is revealing is that these sort of you know patch and speak jobs that liberal governments do about things like healthcare systems that they can't sustain that that it only works when times are good like yeah. the liberals will you know, like manipulate information and tell everybody, oh, we're putting more money into healthcare than ever and, oh, we're doing more than this than we ever have before. And, it's, I mean, it's all spin. It's all spin to, you know, communicate this idea that you can spend proportionately less money on something that needs more of it and have a superior product. This, my friends, is the great illusion of the neoliberalism. I do. It doesn't doesn't work. Yeah, I have to say, man. Van, I do have to say that 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 the the constant lie of we're spending the, the lie buried in the truth of we're spending more money on health than any government has ever spent before is that because the population is larger than it's ever been before. The population is older than it's ever been before. The population has more comorbidities than it's ever had before. And actually Proportionally, your point is right. We spend less money and the governments spend less money and they do cut what is projected future spending out of the budget. You know, like, it, it, and, and but they, and it gets reported oh, record spending in health. It's like, well, yeah, there's also record collection of taxes, like, because there's a record number of people, you know, like, records are easy if you measure them in absolute terms. Oh, it's just, it's enraging. But this is the issue about, 
regional healthcare and rural healthcare, particularly in New South Wales, that everybody's known that there are massive systemic problems with healthcare services and resources for healthcare in remote and regional communities in New South Wales. Like this is one of the, th- and this is, you know, part of my disgust with the National Party is that we're always told, you know, the National Party, oh, yeah, out fighting for country people, standing up for country people, delivering for country people, and here's a photograph of a man in a hat, you know, cutting a ribbon at, you know, some new facility that's been given pork barrel money and a boondoggle like but the actual problems, the actual investments, the actual structural considerations about how you run a functioning healthcare system that services everyone, um, that that hasn't been happening. The National Party haven't delivered that. And we can see that by what's happening now, faced with a genuine crisis, absolutely ripping. 10% of the population of Wilcannia is COVID positive. One in well, ten people. I, did, I saw I saw an interesting tweet, and I can't remember who who actually tweeted it, but I did see an interesting tweet that said, um, "You know, Gladys, Gladys talks about investing in in health in health systems and regional healthcare, but not about uh, any investments in health workers or nurses, because of course." Those are the people who join the union, and those are the people who have the skills to make those things work, and and that's the real danger, I think, of this. We're going to live with COVID. Well, it's great to have a bed, and it's even better if there's a ventilator available. But if there isn't someone who knows how to put those things together in a way that actually saves someone's life, then then it's just junk in a room, frankly expensive junk in a room and and this is the real danger that that, that cutting away and cutting away at the education system that trains people cutting away at the places in hospitals at the places in in community health results in less skilled staff the skilled staff that are there are more burnt out people leave the industry you know it's a real it's a real danger Ben, I do want to talk a little bit about something that has happened in a, in in regional New South Wales yesterday, because uh, this goes back to, in some ways, what you've been writing about in your book. So there were 79 um, locations yesterday where um, foreign propagandists uh, inspired a, a range of what I would call spreader events Uh and 153 people were arrested. Three police officers were injured. Uh, today, um, police officers in Australia and New Zealand raided uh, properties and arrested uh, individuals who claim to be leaders of political movements but are, in fact, mouthpieces of foreign propagandists uh, and have been coordinating misinformation about COVID. Uh, They tried to do a truck blockade this week. That fell over. Um, And I'll give you a a good, clear-cut example of why it pays to be in your union. The TWU coordinated strike action um, at Toll, that was last Friday. 6,000 workers walked off the job to protest against cuts to their, the job security. Uh, this mob of uh, mouthpieces for foreign propagandists, uh, who Pauline Hanson, by the way, uh, had supported, tried to organise this truck blockade, and apparently one truck rocked up. So for all of their talk... Yeah, they, because they're not union truckies. Union truckies uh, are with the TWU and participate in coordinated action. These are scab truckies. And at the same time, we're seeing now in Victoria um, fake posters uh, purporting to be from all the unions in Victoria, Victorian Trades Hall, TWU, the CFMEU, Australian unions, the nurses, the services union, the health workers union... The, the CPSU, they've all said, you know, the AMWU, the manufacturing workers, they've all said our name has been put on this thing. We don't know anything about it. This is not real. Don't be sucked in. You know, these are coordinated, usually offshore. You, like I said, people in New Zealand have been arrested about this, um, attempts to undermine the protection of Australian people. And, and, and frankly, you know, if ever there was a good time, I'm going to quickly plug um, the Australian Union's podcast on the job 
here, Van, too, because, you know, you've got to get your news from trusted sources. You know, you join your union to get the latest info about what's actually going on. Listen to On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. That's two names you know. That's two names you can trust. That's the Australian Union's official podcast. They'll tell you what's going on in the workplace. Uh, but, Van, we're seeing this activity designed to undermine protections and in New South Wales, 79 locations yesterday. Oh, yeah, my mother got a leaflet and I and my mother was like, what, what's this? Do you know anything about this? And I was like, this is QAnon garbage, Mum. Like they're using terms that QAnon people use and Ben is completely right. This is the work of foreign propagandists. This stuff is not being initiated by Australians. There's no organic movement behind this. In activist circles, we call what's going on astroturfing, and that's where you pretend you're a grassroots movement and you coordinate, you know, these supposedly grassroots uprisings, but they're they're planned and they're centralised and they're from an agenda that has nothing to do with the community whatsoever. It's, you know, the right the right slogans to provoke a certain kind of a certain section of the population who are totally immersed in a sealed information, what we call a sealed information environment, who've like, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid on Facebook or Telegram or whatever and decided to believe in the lizard people and the rest of the garbage the conspiracy theorists go on with. And, yeah, so they've been, the, the leaflet my mother got the other day was about standing outside council offices in, you know, a global program protest against the secret pedophilia networks that are behind everything and just let me reassure everybody this is total garbage this is total total garbage you know nobody is denying that sexual abusive children exist in the community but this idea that every famous person ever has been secretly involved in it to milk children of of their adrenochrome while they're being tortured which is what these QAnon people go on about that's actually the plot to monsters inc like yeah. you know, terrifying children so you can steal their screams is from a pixar movie it is not real this is not this is not what we're doing as a society or a community. And, of course, you know, people are angry and frustrated because of lockdown. They want someone to blame. If they go down into that rabbit hole where they start consuming this propaganda, which is produced, by the way, by extremely sophisticated, well-funded, professional, international political operations. Well, Steve, like I don't want Steve any, Bannon I, is, is Of is course, Steve, Steve Bannon is involved in heaps of these projects. Yeah. You know, Steve Bannon is an old, my book is talks about this, he's an old veteran of the internet. He watched things like Gamergate happen. He saw a chance for a propaganda channel that he could manipulate to serve his own interests and he, he supported it. Like, I, I want everyone to be aware, the people who organised the January, Six protests in the United States. The organisers—they've been on the um, payroll of the Trump campaign for months. Like yeah. it's more than six months after January six, and some of them have still been getting paid. You know, they get money from corporate billionaires, families like the Mercers and people like Peter Thiel. You know, like and the Koch brothers in in different sort of campaigns. But like, you know, the the corporatist, you know, exploitative capitalist enemy is protecting their own interests by funding propaganda operations that set people and communities against one another and, you know, skillfully manipulate people to to mobilise behind these extremely disruptive, anti-democratic um, stupid campaigns. And this is, oh, we're all going to go and protest the invisible magical pedophiles who run our local council and we're going to go there and just turn up and stand there in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic which is killing people but we're pretending it is not real. I mean, I just I want to be very unambiguous about this, this kind of denialism, like taking, t- drinking this Kool-Aid, swallowing this pill, you know, consuming this propaganda is physically killing people in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Every day I have like various coordinated lists so I can follow the stuff that my book is about. Yeah. And I get reports every day of prominent COVID deniers from the United States dying of coronavirus. Yeah. And yep. COVID deniers in the UK dying of coronavirus. And that's what this you know, looks like, The guy like, who right? called himself Mr. Anti-Vax is dead. Yeah, and th- and that's what this looks like, right? When you, when you, you know, they started with, with, with 
you know, a few thousand people, um, which again, in, in the context of the, you know, eight or nine million people who live in New South Wales, a couple of thousand isn't very many to actually get to a protest um, or to, a, to an event. They started with that. Now they've now they've gone into these 79 locations. You know, it is a seeding of COVID. They, they're against masks. They're against all of the protections that have actually been keeping people safe. And as you say, in America, they're dying. These the the, the leaders in inverted commas of these things are dying. I, I do I do want to move us on, Van, because there's a bit still to talk about today. And oh, Ben, he can't do his hand signals when I go off <laughs> on a rant. If we're in the shed together, he gives me a little wind up. So now he's got to be like, now, Van, we've got to move on. Got to move on, Van. And I'm moving on. I don't mind moving on, Ben, because you know, obviously, oh, I'm deep in the swamp, my friends. I'm I know, deep in the swamp I know, this way. But- you know, you raised the issue about democracy and anti-democratic and representation. You know, those are important features of our system. And, you know, there's things happening today and things that have happened this week that I think call into question people's faith in the democratic process or the, or the people who represent us at a federal level, certainly, because even though... Uh, Yesterday was equal pay day and the gender pay gap has now risen to 14.2%, which is equal to about 61 days of working for free. Women in this country effectively work 61 days for free in order to get um, uh, you know, the same kind of rate as a man. Uh, and Vic Trades Hall have actually launched a pay gap calculator. So people should check that out because you can, you can calculate um, your, your pay gap. And uh, here's a handy... Here's a handy uh, tip for the men out there. You, you won't find that you're getting underpaid, but you might be asked to make a contribution or support the campaign, and I'd urge you to do so. But even though that was yesterday, today the Morrison government, who commissioned the Respect at Work report in the light of all the sort of awful things that have been happening to women, particularly in the Morrison government. Yeah, from Liberal Party staffers, allegedly, yep. Yeah, uh, have today voted against implementing all of the recommendations of the report. Uh, and so hashtag we won't wait was trending on Twitter this morning. Um, workers right around the country are trying to get the government to support these recommendations and to get One Nation to, to vote for them in the Senate. Now, you know, this is this is so frustrating because the, the Morrison government said that they'd take on board all the recommendations. They said that when they first came out. Of course, the one they don't want to do is put an obligation on employers to treat sexual harassment in the workplace in the same sort of way that they have to treat occupational health and safety. That is that the employer has a responsibility to take proactive steps to ensure the safety of women from sexual harassment in the same way they do with OHS things. So Morrison government doesn't want to support that. One Nation saying they'll vote against all of the recommendations of the report, which just boggles. There are 55 recommendations, and they range from that they level. They are not patriots. One Nation are not patriots. No. They don't care what happens to the majority of the people who live in this country. <laughs> Having a day. I can tell. Having a day. So, uh, but, I mean, this is so typical. One Nation, oh, yeah, we speak for the average Australian unless they're women, which automatically takes out 51% of the population or brown or live in the city or live in the country or have jobs or are retired. Like, who do they speak to? They speak to bigots. That's who they speak to. And they get elected by bigots who just vote for whoever's the most bigoty and then they sit in parliament and do absolutely shocking, appalling things to ordinary people. So a big thank you on behalf of all the women who've been sexually harassed and humiliated at work to Pauline Hanson's One Nation for their complete abandonment of any kind of moral principle or responsibility towards all those women. Thanks, Pauline. 
And look, I hope I hope that they actually listen to the thousands and thousands of messages that they're getting today and do support the recommendations. You know, like they can still make that decision to to reverse their position, you know, and, and they should try and remember that they poll three percent nationwide. You know, the, the latest the latest news poll has one nation at three percent. And frankly, you're right, Van. You know, who do they represent, really? Who do they really represent? Because it's not women. It's not workers. It's not the retire, retirees. It's, you know, they, they, need, they need to do better. Um, and, you know, we always hold out hope. We, we, we try and be hopeful. But it is hard to see, you know, there's been months and months now since the scandals, the wrongdoing was exposed, the mistreatment of women by members of the Morrison government came to light through Four Corners investigations, you know, months. And, and there hasn't been any real tangible changes to workplace laws that would protect women. Like, there has not been anything, anything. And this respected work report was supposed to be the centrepiece of how we would be dealing with this issue as a nation. And it's so disappointing to see. Yeah, it's disappointing. Do you know, Ben, I'd go a little bit further. It's really just insulting because, I mean, it's typical, like I said, Liberal Party, it's all about spin. Say anything to stay in power. Say anything to create this illusion of responsibility that when it gets down to it, you don't really want to take. So this respect to work um uh, review this, you know, the the report, the recommendations, this was going to solve all of our problems. Scott Morrison was taking the issues of Australian women really seriously, you know, because they were commissioning this report because, you know, like the spin is that he cares and then, of course, the review turns up and then the review shelved. We go through this with the, the Liberals all the time because, remember, this is what they did with um, – the family court as well. All of these reviews into the family, the family court that said we've got to do this, we've got to do this. The resources got to go here. All the experts mm. and like participating in those expert panels, they they get experts. Like yeah. they recruit the people who work in this stuff, who know this stuff, who've researched it, who are in the era. You know, nobody is going into those processes going, oh, let's just indulge ourselves. I mean, I hate to tell this to a lot of my misogynist friends on the internet um, who I see when I'm undercover in QAnon groups and things, there is no actual big feminist conspiracy. Like I would love to be in the pay of big feminism. I I just, I love the idea of being secretly funded to be like a femo ninja running around to make the world more feminist and, you know, snatch equality from the, the jaws of ongoing patriarchal horror. Unfortunately, that's not a thing that happens. You get a lot of, you know, researchers and health bureaucrats and, you know, social bean counters in a room going and effectively going, how much is this costing the economy? What can we do? Um, what are the policy settings that we need in order for this, you know, massive cost not to be borne in all these places? Mm-hmm. We know that this has productivity impacts. We know all the negative things about it, the amount of money that's got to be spent in social services to deal yeah. with the problems after they happen. Like that's that, – they're the discussions that get had. But they're politically inconvenient to the Liberal Party. You ideologically really aren't quite on board with this whole equality of women thing. It's why none of the women in the Liberal Party are really allowed to do anything apart from make apologies on behalf of the men. I mean, that's well, I think, primarily I think, your role in the Liberal Party if you're a woman. You know? Yeah, and I think, Van, that's a good point, right, because you've got some real tangible things have happened in the last 12 to 18 months. You know, the Brittany Higgins allegations were very, very serious. They are very, very serious. And now there is an AFP investigation. Morrison had his office, the Prime Ministerial Office, investigate that. They were supposed to have an inquiry. Yesterday they cancelled the inquiry because they said it would jeopardise the AFP investigation. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. All of the ministers who've been implicated in the mistreatment of women in the Morrison government remain ministers, men and women, who've been implicated in the mistreatment of women, mistreatment of women staffers on both sides of the house have remained as ministers. And some of them now hold more senior portfolios. And I'm going to give an example here because I think it actually tells a story over over a period of time. You know, so Michaela Cash is the current Attorney General 
and Industrial Relations Minister. The Minister for Whiteboards, McKay Cash. And she was Industrial Relations Minister, people might remember, uh, in uh, 2018, 2019. And at a Senate estimates hearing, she mistook a question uh, about Morrison's office to be somehow about the women in Morrison's office um, and responded in an ang- in a very angry way yeah. saying that if they wanted to cast aspersions about women in parliamentary offices, um, she had more than a few stories she could tell about the leader of the opposition's office. And at the time, that was, of course, Bill Shorten's office. People were rightly outraged by that. Uh, and she made a sort of qualified apology. She had and to be forced to make the apology. She did. And, and Penny she Wong, did, this Penny was a Wong stormed into the I remember meeting, this because right? it was so appalling. It was a line of questioning from um, Doug Cameron, the great Doug Cameron, who would just laid into her just going, what on earth are you saying? Like, what on earth is going on? And she looked like a complete idiot because she hadn't comprehended the question. She'd sort of misread. Yeah. And now in the light of all of this stuff that's come out about the culture of misogyny in the Liberal Party amongst the staffers. Well, let's go through it, Van, because I think it bears I think it bears a bit of follow follow through, right? Because Michaelia Cash was then effectively demoted um, into into a into a lower um, portfolio. Not as a result of that, just as a result of the desire to make Christian Porter industrial relations minister. Probably, um, of course, people will be very familiar with the Christian Porter situation. He had to stand aside while he prosecuted a, a since abandoned defamation lawsuit, and Michaela Cash was promoted again. Now, at the same time. Alan Tudge, people might know, uh, was a minister who was uncovered to have had an affair with a woman on his staff uh, who was then moved out of his office after the affair ended and her career in politics came to an end in this new ministerial office, the ministerial office of Michaeli Cash. People might also remember that there's a voicemail message from Michaelia Cash to Brittany Higgins uh, because after Brittany Higgins's incident, uh, alleged incident, I should probably say, given the AFP investigation, uh, she was moved into Michaelia Cash's office, after which she no longer worked in politics. There is a bit of a pattern here that, frankly, doesn't look great. Now, I'm not implying anything untoward, but there is certainly a pattern of women who have had issues with ministers in the Morrison government finding themselves temporarily placed in Michaelia Cash's office before finding themselves more permanently placed outside the government. And frankly, when you look at that record, when you look at that behaviour, it's hard not to look at it and go, well, it's hardly any wonder that this industrial relations minister hasn't pushed hard to put sexual harassment protections into workplace law. Like, I just, I can't help but draw those things together, Van. Oh, but, I mean, this is this is standard patriarchal behaviour. Like, forgive me for getting all 70s feminists about it, everyone, but... Let's let's just be very aware that we're dealing with a political party that has an approach to gender relations which is from the 1970s. So the language is really quite appropriate. You know, it's a thing that uh, industries that exploit women always find women to be their spokespeople. Like it's it, it's a plausible deniability. Oh, these things, you know, they cannot possibly systemic. Look, the person who is making this defence of these horrific things we do is a woman, therefore we're okay. And we've seen this. Like the most you hear about, the most you ever hear from women in the Liberal Party is when they're wheeled out to defend the appalling things the men have done. That's when we hear from, you know, women like female representatives uh, on the Liberal benches. It always is the case. And Michaelia Cash, who has who has a career distinguished 
by ministerial incompetence, failed policies, bad ideas, you know, like disastrous failed stunts and hiding behind a whiteboard. I mean, what function does this person actually serve on a political level? Like why is she constantly rewarded with failing upwards for all the disasters that she's implicated in? Well, because she is she is the the woman sent to front this patriarchal enterprise that treats women like absolute garbage in order to put a sheen on it. That's why she's there. She's prepared to do it every single time because you can always find one. You can always find that person. They call it, in feminist theory, they call it patriarchal bargaining where, you know, there's, there's recognition that there are, you know, dynamics of gender relations which are unfair. You know, that men are not discriminated against for being men. Men can be discriminated against for being workers or they can be discriminated against for being black or brown or gay or all kinds of things or being older or having disabilities. Men can be affected by those disadvantages and discriminations. But nobody, like I said, big feminism does not exist, is sitting down going, you know, let's systematically like build uh, pay and employment relations and industrial workspace that consistently underpays men against women for the work that they do. That's not actually happening. Well, it's no, interesting, nobody isn't it? even wants that to happen. Not even no. raging feminist harpies like myself want that to happen. We want no. to have equal opportunity. Correct. But what happens, of course, is that in a, in a system where power is concentrated in one gender over the other with a number of other factors, introduction to intersectionality 101, that it's, you know, it's not just that you're all men are not privileged by the fact that they're men. They don't live in privilege because they're men. They have, you know, the the comparative privilege of not being discriminated against for being men. But, you know, to ascend the upper echelons of the Liberal Party, I think we can look demographically how narrow it gets, the path to power and importance. They're overwhelmingly white. They're overwhelmingly from corporate or business sector. They overwhelmingly went to elite private schools. They overwhelmingly came from money before they went into parliament to make even more money. Like all of these are factors. But what happens in in the places where power is dispersed, and, and that can be on a domestic level as much as it can be on a federal political level, like in a community, even in a household, that there are women who make patriarchal bargains, who think that by aligning themselves to patriarchal power, to the most powerful men in the room, the men who have... The, the position to advance or punish them, if they as individuals decide to bow out of, you know, the collective solidarity of women, that they will be protected by the patriarchs who they make apologies for. And let me say without any without any hesitation that Michaelia Cash is that woman. Michaelia Cash is the patriarchal bargain. She is always, always out making excuses and blurring the lines on behalf of the men who she has aligned herself with. Well, and she's she, disgusting she, and disgraceful. Well, Van, she, she basically admits as much in an interview that was in the Good Weekend magazine earlier in the year where she talks about, you know, if you're a woman, you just have to work harder. If there are hurdles put in front of you, you just have to smash through them uh, or go around them which firstly, that's not what you do with a hurdle. You're actually supposed to hurdle it. But nonetheless, you know, I think, I think the point is pretty clear and the point is well made. And, and, and to, to your point, you know, people who want equality um, for men and for women, um, for, for people of all genders and orientations and backgrounds, you know, those are people who get involved in their union. You know, and and that's why the union movement has been pushing this respect at work uh, report because it is an independent report. It's commissioned by the government, um, and the union movement participated in good faith uh, because they wanted to see good outcomes, and those outcomes are there. They they could be implemented. You know, if the minister actually got behind them, it would make a real difference. If the minister is not going to do that, then there is still an opportunity for all of us. To, to make the change happen. You know, we've said it before, we'll say it again. You can make change happen in your community. You can make it happen workplace by workplace. You join your union. You go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. You join your union. You get involved. You, you be the change that you want to see in the world, you know, and you participate in these things. It doesn't mean you've got to, 
you know, it doesn't mean you've got to go to every protest. It doesn't mean you've got to fight for everything. But it means that you're part of a chorus of voices. You're part of seeing positive change happen. And, and frankly, with ministers like Cash and Tudge and Porter, we need more and more people to join the union and be part of that chorus to say, no, we won't tolerate. We will not wait. We will not tolerate sexual harassment in the workplace. You know, something that I've really come to experience, like I've been a political activist most of my life. I went to demos with my mother when I was a kid because my mother was like, we are powerless unless we are together and really drummed into me that notion. You know, I'm from a very, very ordinary suburban family and was the first kid in my family to go to university and all of those things. And my parents... You know, my parents never had uh, had political platforms, you know. They weren't mm, members of mm. parliament. They weren't leaders of organisations. They didn't have columns in The Guardian. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But they realised that if they wanted to affect change in the world, they could do that as being union members and being part of a collective. And they drum those, those lessons into me and obviously, you know, I, I have been an activist for all kinds of causes ever since. And one of the things you realise, you know, when you're committed to causes is that you encounter a lot of people, and a lot of them are really well-intentioned activists, who have this idea that, you know, it's enough to just be right. Like if you just communicate to people, if you somehow get your face in the media for five seconds um, or your cause does, you'll be able to convince people of the moral superiority of your argument and then, you know, suddenly that will just change everything. And it, it doesn't. Like change requires absolutely vast structures of, of experience and engagement and a certain level of professionalism. Like marriage equality didn't happen in Australia because everybody suddenly went, yeah, actually, that's fair. Marriage equality happened because huge numbers of people devoted time and resources and employed other people in order to make cases and go door to door and make advertisements and print posters, you know, and lobby politicians and urge, you know, the urge the legislation to get before Parliament. Mm. You know, these were massive, massive projects. And it's like if you want something to change, if you want the workplace to be more fair, if you think you deserve gender equality and that if you think the people you love deserve gender equality and society deserves gender equality and all of these things that are important and moral and good, like there, there is a necessity for those movements and changes to be resourced and union membership is part of that. Like unions aren't just about putting your hand up and going, I'm a member of the union. It's about employing the researchers and the lawyers and the industrial officers and the professional campaigners and all the stuff that you need to change agendas and to prepare legislation and make media arguments and build that infrastructure. And that depends on you. Like for that to exist depends on the collectives of people to support that through union membership, through paying dues, you know, through engaging in the way that you can. And, you know, if you want to change the world, the tools are there. As long as we still live in a democracy in this country, I genuinely believe anything is possible. But it, it takes that effort and that commitment. And fair play to everybody who worked on getting this report in front of the Liberals, you know, who agitated and went, this is important, gender equality is important, there has to be respect at work. And it's a it's a setback that the Liberals have said no. It's a setback that One Nation are just basically evil bigots who stop anything good from happening. But it's not the end no. as long as there's a movement who that's willing to keep resourcing the campaign to go forward. Absolutely. Well, look, you know, we need to talk about, you know, moving forward and what the future does look like because today we also got the GDP figures. This is the economic figures. And I know this can be a bit boring and a bit dry. No, not when you talk about it, darling. <laughs> Let me tell you. Well, I'll try, I'll, tell us about the GDP figures, Ben. I'll try and I'll try do I hear Barb laughing in the background? I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and pump them up a bit. Because look, technically Australia has avoided a recession, right? But it's it's a recession 
in all but name. So the economy grew by 0.7% in the June quarter. Now, that, that means that- That's not much. That's a that's small number. That's not much. And frankly, that's about how much government spending grew, right? And it's they're, they're just bodgy figures. We've got to a point where economic figures have become so rubbery. bodgy and dodgy and rubbery. Rubbery. That, that they're almost meaningless. You know, last week it was unemployment dropped because so many people dropped out of the workforce, right? They stopped looking for work. So in our GDP growth figures, the big thing that's hidden is that our terms of trade are at record levels. That effectively means that the price we get for our exports is so much more than the price we pay for our imports. So they've had a historic increase, and they're responsible for a growth of 3.2% in our GDP. That That's massive. That means we're selling more iron ore at higher prices than we've basically ever sold. You know, the, the economic figures, a bit like the job figures, are sort of this delusion, right? Like, it's a delusion that the iron ore price and how much of it we can sell overseas is representative of our entire economy. You know, it's the the delusion that a person doing one hour of paid work is somehow no longer unemployed or that if you just stop looking for work because there's none going where you live, you're no longer unemployed. Like the reality of our economy is that inflation, the price of things has gone up 3.8%. And wages have only gone up 1.3%. That's in the public sector. They're the wages the government directly controls. They've cut people's genuine take-home pay in real terms by 2.5%. One in four jobs is now casual. Millions are unemployed and underemployed. You know, we're supposed to have had a gas-led recovery. If anybody remembers that or knows where that's at, you know, do let us know. But that's gone nowhere, Right. The home builder scheme that overinflated, already inflated house prices by driving up the cost of materials. And now builders are reporting they may lose money on building homes for contracts that they made in the first half of the year when they actually get time and materials to build them in the second half of the year. So, you know, if you if you actually think about a recession as a period of time where people's living standards go backwards, then we've been in a recession for almost two years. And we're probably going to be in a recession for the rest of this term of the Morrison government. So, you know, that's my little wrap on the recession. And I'm calling it the recession because for real people in the real economy, not Twiggy Forest, not Jenna Reinhardt, not people who own an iron ore mine, but people who either have to log on to Zoom every day to go to work or are in an essential employment and can go to a job or who, frankly, have dropped out of the workforce because there are no jobs going where they are. This is a recession. We're seeing people draw down on their savings. We're seeing people slow down their spending. These are all the things people do when their living standards are going backwards. So, you know, again, this is the time to be part of your union. And you might go, Ben, you're telling me there's a recession and now you want me to spend money on a union membership. Well, what do you say, Van? It's a tax deduction, right, for most people? It is. So not only is it a tax deduction, unionised workers get paid more. On average, unionised workers earn more, are paid more. The more people in the union, the more capacity there is to try and push up those wages. You know, this is this is a recession that's impacting working people, real people. You know, the numbers, the headline numbers show that the wealthy are not being impacted by this. It's people who get paid a wage who are being impacted, people who are reliant on benefit payments and support who are impacted by it. And if you're one of those people, being in a union is the best thing you can do. Your 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 actual living standard has had a 2.5% cut in real terms. And yet the government's going to go and bang about how there's not a recession, it's not a recession, we've had growth, we've had growth. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't really care about the price of iron ore. It doesn't doesn't impact my back pocket and it doesn't impact the back pocket of about 24 and a half million Australians. It's just a very small number. Uh, 
but it just has an oversized impact on our GDP. Anyway, that's my rant about the recession. Is there anything you want to add to that, Van? <laughs> I just, I'm sorry I'm such a bad mood, everybody. I haven't seen the love of my life in over two months, and every week I just get darker and darker about it. Well, I think it's probably a good time then to talk about the good news. Van, tell us how magnetic fluid is helping us win the battle against microplastic pollution. Okay, so this is just a really awesome story. Um, It's about a kid from the south of Ireland, and the south of Ireland is God's own country. Like, it's one of – and full admission – this is the Batam, well, it wasn't the Batam, it was the other half of my family's old country. Um, so places where I have been of just absolutely staggering beauty. But the beaches in Ireland are getting covered in plastic because that's the reality of plastic production. In the big list of why capitalism is bad, it's the fact that uh, market expansion into places where there is no um, garbage processing means that garbage just ends up in the ocean, which uh, is something that you and I had the really appalling experience of seeing in some of yeah. our um, travels in Southeast Asia and seeing plastic on beaches and becoming extremely depressed by what it's doing to the environment. Anyway, a kid who grew up in the south of Ireland who was watching plastic accumulate on the beautiful beaches he'd grown up with became he said that he he got really concerned by it from the age of 12 and Mm -hmm. was just like this has to end this is really dangerous and of course rather than just trash part of the environmental problem is that plastic ending up in waterways creates the phenomenon of microplastic tiny 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 bits of plastic that of course get swallowed by fish and poisoned fish i mean they're digging fish they're getting fish out of the sea that have you know plastic in their gullets it's totally disgusting and it's poisoning us there's a really good um new doctor who episode like in the new who um, episode about plastic pollution i've got to say a neat intersection of all my interests (laughs) but this kid whose name is um his name is fian ferrer he had made a really important observation one day where he noticed some rocks at the local beach that had stains from an oil spill poor old ireland um these rocks that had an oil stain were where these bits of plastic were accumulating. Like he noticed that the oil attracted the plastic. And, of course, this is basic chemistry is that like tends to attach to like. And he started to – he asked his science teacher some questions and realised that um, oil and plastic are both non-polar um, in, in chemistry and therefore had this connection to one another. And he started thinking about it, about how if oil attracted plastic, various manipulations of oil could be used to get to get plastic out of environments, to get it out of water. Mm. And he worked out that he could magnetise a chemical substance um, and give it this charge that would enable, you know, the oil to attract plastic and therefore decontaminate water well anyway this kid he spent some years on it and he's won like this massive science prize um that is funded by google because he's he's worked out how to use essentially this magnetized substance as a water filter for getting rid of plastic and he's working on a prototype of a filter that can be put into drains or used in wastewater treatment facilities to get plastic out as water is being processed and released into the ocean and also for fittings on boats so boats can continually sort of process water and clean it as they travel along and they reckon that the the filter that he's developed can get up to 93% of the plastic out of the water which is phenomenal and he's just a kid who you know saw environmental degradation gave it some thought you know, used his observations to put something together. And people are, I mean, this is really, really serious stuff. Mm. You know, poisoning water, you know, there's that horrible. This is great news. This is this yeah. is a fantastic news story. We, it is, you know, it is. And the guys who do the ocean cleanup, the former surfers, you sometimes see them on Instagram, the guys who are called For Ocean, and they sell plastic bracelets that are beads made out of the plastic that they haul off beaches. And they're yeah. trying to run this sort of non-profit beach cleanup operation. Well, they've got some good news 
this week as well, that they've got a solar-powered robot that can clean beaches of plastic 20 times faster than a person can. And this solar-powered robot is designed in such a way that it sifts only like a, a top layer of sand so it doesn't cause environmental degradation or or screw up the the surface of a beach and they're wanting to and they're remote controlled so there's a person because we want we're not scared of robots if people are operating them and if robots aren't replacing people but enhancing work that people do that's what we want so he's like so those guys are trialing that as well with more of this plastic cleanup effort yeah as you know i have nightmares (laughs) about plastic like pollution late at night because well, I am that person. Well, and, I think uh, this is good news about plastic and about how people are tackling the plastic epidemic that we have in, around the world. And what a fantastic, fantastic use of science. And and as you say, people and science combined to deal with a problem that in a way people created using science because plastics are generally, you know, a compound, scientific compound. So It's stuff like this that gives me hope in the world and, you know, that a a kid saw a problem, like he spoke to people about it, he had resources at his disposal to think it through and this he's now being funded to do this like revolutionary and really important thing that will lead to something else. And I just think, you know, be that person. Be that person who commits to fixing the thing. Use the systems that will help you fix that thing. There are lots of people in the world who want the world to be better. They want it to be cleaner. They want the ocean pollution gone. They want the plastic cleaned up. They want clean water. Those people are waiting for you to join them. And every single person who who makes a contribution is contributing to a collective effort that does actually change things. Absolutely. On that fantastically positive note, we're going to end the week <laughs> on Wednesday. He and is just, so protective of me, people. You can hear it in his voice, can't I you? Just, I just want to thank everybody for listening. Thank you to everyone uh, for, who shares this episode, who shared any episode of the week on Wednesday. It's always great to get messages from people. We try and respond to them all. I'm sorry if there's been a delay in getting back to you. Do write to us. Do leave reviews of the show. Uh, we do uh, we do enjoy those. We do like to promote those to future listeners as well. Uh, and congratulations to everyone who's joined their union as a result of listening to the week on Wednesday. Oh, it they're is- our happiest. They're our happiest messages when people are like you know I'd been putting it off for ages and I just buckled down and did it. And it, we're just like joy to the world. That Absolutely. is great news. That puts the sunshine back in my heart. So wherever you are in Australia or around the world, please do stay safe in these troubled COVID times. Benny, I love you. I miss you. People can probably hear the dog in the background for most of this episode crying. He has refused to leave my arms and has cried the whole time. I hope that hasn't been too distracting. Um, But we hope to see you soon, darling. And, yeah. I love you very much. Oh, I miss you. And, you know, it's it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. All right. Well, I love you, darling. Bye. I love you too. Bye.